greatest lie that Satan has propagated is the lie that somehow you can be justified by your works. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. It's a pleasure to open God's Word with you. Uh, If you are new, if this is your first time, my name is Micah. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And we are in the book of Romans. Uh, If you are also new to the church, we uh, teach God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we are going to finish out chapter three in the book of Romans this morning. So turn there with me. And I just want to, I want to commend a brother to you that I think you should go follow on social media. His name is Dustin Benj. Uh, and some of you probably know him. He's, he's pretty, pretty active uh, on Facebook, so, uh, Twitter. I think he's on Instagram. Uh, but he is the professor of church history and preaching at Union Theological Seminary in Wales. And he has a real gift for writing theologically sound, encouraging statements. And he wrote this on Monday of this week. He said, it's Monday and Jesus is still alive. Capital A-L-I-V-E. He is still alive, ruling, reigning, and interceding. Uh, So let's continue to rest and trust in Christ's finished work this morning. And as we begin, let's be reminded, as we always are, that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. God created us, and he created the universe. And as creator, he has the authority to mold his creation for his purposes. He has not stayed silent at all. He has spoken through the work of Christ, and he continues to speak through his word that we have in front of us this morning. His word has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We have in Scripture, we know that it is sufficient, meaning that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We know that his word is inerrant and infallible. That means that it's absolutely true and totally trustworthy. We can trust God's word. And we know that the word of God is active for today. It is powerful. It's living. It's cleansing. It's nourishing. And it's sanctifying. So may he direct our lives this morning as we look at the purpose of propitiation. The purpose of propitiation. We're going to read our text. And then we will pray. And... Let's start in verse 21 and just get the full context of this section, but we will uh, be looking specifically at the end of verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Romans 3, verse 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your inerrant word this morning. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would direct our thoughts, our minds this morning to be attentive to what you have to say in your word. And we ask, in light of all of this, in light of your word, that you would direct our actions as we go from here today, that we would apply this word to our lives, to our daily lives, Lord. We thank you that you have not stayed silent, that you have given us your clear word. And we ask that you would teach this morning, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Pastor Pilgrim taught last week, uh, in verse 21, we see a turn. We see a turning point. And Paul has convincingly shown that all are condemned, that there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who can gain righteousness by keeping the law. But there is, there is a way to have perfect righteousness credited to our account. And that is through faith uh, in Jesus' finished work. He is the propitiation, meaning that he has satisfied the work, has satisfied the wrath of God and upheld God's holy standard. And so now God looks at us through the work of Christ, uh, through the work of his beloved son. And his work gave us the right to be called children of God, as John 1.12 tells us. But now as we come to the second half of verse 25, uh, we're going to see God's purpose in all of this. What's God's purpose? And to put it simply, it was for his own glory. His own glory. Yes, Christ died to redeem us, to redeem sinners, but that is secondary to glorifying God. And we see this in Jesus' prayer before he goes to the cross in John 17, what his purpose is. His purpose was to glorify his Father during his ministry. John 17, 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And the purpose of Jesus stays the same as he goes to the cross. And we must take note of this, friends, the selfless example of Christ. Because nothing has infected our world more than the myriad of different ways of selfishness and pride that we see in us and in our world. People are absorbed in their own feelings, their own desires, their own possessions, absorbed in themselves. It's very, very clear. You don't have to look far at all. And this is, the, the church is not immune to this. The church is infected with this as well. Uh, Christ is presented sometimes as the answer to all of life's problems. He gives us peace, joy, success, happiness, wants, desires. They're all found in Christ. Jesus is here to save us from hell and to give us everything we want. Now, to be sure, Christ, the relationship we have with Christ does give us true peace and true joy and true purpose. But in the correct biblical perspective, Christ is not the answer to our wants. Christ is the answer to what we need most, and that is salvation from sin, first and foremost. And so as we look at God's word, we see that the focus is on God. The focus is not on man. The focus is on God. 
The purpose of salvation is to glorify God. Colossians 1.16 says that all things have been created by him and for him, for Jesus. The psalmist saying, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. And this should be our cry uh, as believers as well. We must be aware of this self-focus and how it sneaks in and root it out wherever we can. Even when we think of heaven, we often think of heaven from a very uh, selfish self-focus because we think about all the blessings and joy that we will have, what, what Jesus is going to do for me in heaven. And that, those are true, right? And we do look forward to these things. And yet, the Lord brings believers to heaven, first of all, in order that they might glorify him forever, forever. Uh, David Brainerd, he was an American missionary to the Native Americans in the 1700s. And he said this on his deathbed, My heaven is to please God and glorify him and give all to him and to be wholly devoted to his glory. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or low seat there, but to live and please and glorify God. Is this our attitude, brothers and sisters? And so as we come to this passage this morning, we have to understand this first, that the work of Christ was to glorify God the Father. And if you would like to take notes, we're going to see that God is glorified in a couple ways. We see a fourfold purpose in these verses. So the purpose of propitiation is first to display God's righteousness, secondly to exalt God's grace, Thirdly, to magnify God's impartiality. And then fourthly, to hold, uphold God's standard. To uphold God's standard. So let's look at our first point here, to display God's righteousness. And we see this displayed in two ways. We see it in the past and we see it in the present. Look at uh, verse 25. From the past, he says, at the second half there, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And this is the second time we've seen the word forbearance. Just look back quickly to chapter 2, verse 4. We see it there. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Uh, the word in Greek there is pronounced anoke. Anoke. And it means to hold back or to delay. And John MacArthur comments on this verse in this way. He says, rather than destroying every person the moment he or she sins, God graciously holds back his judgment. He saves sinners in a physical and temporal way from what they deserve to show them his saving character, that they might come to him and receive salvation that is spiritual and eternal. And we see God's forbearance clearly displayed in the very beginning of time with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Of course, we know that when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not die on the spot. God did not strike them dead, although they did die in that moment spiritually. Yet God, in his forbearance, in his grace, he allowed them to live for 900 plus years before they died physically. And we see this in the New Testament as well. 
Look at 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a verse that we probably have memorized and we say often, not wishing that any should perish. The Lord is patient toward us. And the context here in this passage is foretelling God's future judgment that's coming. But he's saying the Lord is patient. God's justice and his grace are on a more perfect level than I think we can understand as humans. Consider this. He is perfectly just, so no sin will ever go unpunished. And yet at the same time, he is perfectly gracious that no sin is beyond forgiveness. Just think about that for a moment. He's perfectly just, so no sin will ever go unpunished. And yet he is perfectly gracious, so no sin is beyond forgiveness. Every sin will either be paid for by the sinner in the form of death and punishment and hell, or it will be paid for him because he has placed his faith in the work of Christ done on his behalf. It's amazing. It really is. And so now we see these words here, he, has, or he had passed over former sins. So let me tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying that God has given a wink and a nod to what happened to the sin that happened in the Old Testament. Just saying, oh, well, they didn't really have the full picture. They didn't understand, so we're just going to excuse that. No, it's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying that God has withheld his judgment for a period of time. In Psalm 78, Asaph, the psalmist, explains this well. Look at what he says. He says, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Psalm 78. Paul in Acts refers to this as well during his sermon uh, at Mars Hill outside Athens. In Acts 17, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, raising Jesus from the dead. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Over and over in God's word, we see that God is gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he abounds in steadfast love, that he has not dealt with us according to our sins, that he has granted us a life to live on this earth full of wonders that his, he has created for us. We sing, God of wonders, beyond our galaxy, you are holy, you are holy. And yet, at the same time, there's urgency because now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't delay, because judgment is coming. And so we see God's righteousness displayed in the past, but we also see it, according to verse 26, look there, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Going back, if you remember in the first chapter of Romans, we saw that God's eternal power and divine nature have been displayed for all to see. So what is the ultimate representation of God's eternal power and divine nature? It's the work of Christ. 
It's the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate display of God's righteousness. And we just mentioned this briefly, but this is why our perfectly holy God, which we just sang about, can be both just and the justifier of us who are sinful and unworthy because we have placed our faith in Jesus. Friends, the more amazing truth this morning is not that incredibly sinful men and women come to God, but that God accepts incredibly sinful men and women without compromising his justice. We Rejoice to hear this morning of what God is doing in the men who just spoke. And we rejoice anytime somebody comes to know the Lord. Sometimes there's even the high-profile high celebrity folks who, who come to Christ and we're amazed because they lived a life that was totally opposite of who God is, and yet God saves them, and there's a huge change. And so we rejoice, and we're thankful for that. But the more amazing thing is that God accepts incredibly sinful men and women without compromising his justice. The substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross is the only way that mankind can be redeemed. And the cross demonstrates not only God's justice, but as we know, it demonstrates his amazing grace. And it's a mystery that we won't understand until we are in glory. But the fact that a holy and just God would provide redemption for us in the gracious act of the cross without violating his holy nature and in doing so bringing all glory to himself is amazing. We, we just sang it simply a moment ago, didn't we? Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else could offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? The only one that can do it is the holy God. That's right, Kim. Amen. Another hymn that beautifully expresses our response to this great truth is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering. That's way too small, way too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The cross, the purpose of propitiation is to display God's righteousness. The second purpose is to exalt God's grace, to exalt God's grace. Look at verse 27. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No but by the law of faith. And so the work of the cross shows us that there is absolutely no room for boasting. We have no reason to congratulate ourselves or find any satisfaction in anything we did because we have done absolutely nothing, friends. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And we're reminded in these verses, and actually the whole section there in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, that compared with the wisdom uh, the sovereign plan of God, the wisdom of God's sovereign plan, there is not a single person 
who could come close. There's not a single person who is wise on this earth. We could in no way come up with something remotely close to the wisdom of God, which verse 30 of that passage tells us is Christ who brings salvation. The wisdom of God is the work of Christ. And the unregenerate person scoffs at that and says, this is ridiculous foolishness. But Paul says to us who are being saved, we understand that it is the very power of God. And Paul asks here, but by what kind of law is boasting excluded? By a law of works? Nope. But by the law of faith. We're under a new law. The gospel, and we'll look at this a little bit deeper in a moment. But next week, as, as Pastor Pilgrim continues in chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul uses the example of Abraham, saying that not even Abraham was justified by his works, not by circumcision. Abraham has nothing to boast about. And Paul's saying, then why are you boasting in your own works? You've got it all wrong. It's all mixed up. The opposite of boasting, friends, is what? What's the opposite of boasting? Humility, an attitude of humility, that's right. And that demonstrates true faith. The tax collector in the temple in Luke 18 shows us that, doesn't he? When he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had nothing to bring. The greatest lie that Satan has propagated is the lie that somehow you can be justified by your works. There's some religions that have very little grace, very little. Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, in them all the results are based totally on you. But our enemy, Satan, is crafty, and it shows up more subtly in religions that have kernels of truth, and yet it is still up to you, like Catholicism, where we, where we must cooperate with God and obtain his grace, unlock his grace in a sense, by keeping the sacraments and doing various things. Friends, with these religions, there is room for boasting. There is room for boasting. But that boasting is such an affront, such an offense to God because it robs God of his glory, which belongs only to him, only to him. Steve Lawson says this, the whole package of salvation, not only the provision of redemption at the cross, but repentance and faith is an unmerited gift from God. So how could we ever have any pride in ourselves? The flesh is still operating within us and wants to take credit for what God has done. That is something that we all struggle with. But Paul reminds the church in Romans, and he reminds us today that everything good we have has been received from God and is an undeserved gift. Therefore, we ought to be the lowly of mind, the humble of heart, and the self-denying. This doctrine of justification by faith should not puff us up, but it should bring us low in our walk with God. That should be our posture. Well, verse 28 clears this up for us when, when Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And we saw this earlier in verse 20. Paul said, therefore, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But these verses remind us that the Reformation of the 16th century brought a recovered understanding of what it means. And we mentioned um, this as we were in Romans 1, 
But I want to bring out a new aspect to this. On October 31st, 1517, the German professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, what was his name? Martin Luther, Luther, yes, nailed his 95 thesis to the front door of the church in Wittenberg. And he was converted two years later in 1519 in the tower of the castle church in that same city. And then two years later in 1521, he was summoned to a trial for heresy. And his books were on the middle of a table in the room. And this is what he was asked. Martin Luther, are these your books and will you recant? They gave him a day to consider it. And he came back the next day and we have this great confession from Luther. He said, how can I recant of my books? They are filled with the word of God. To recant my books would be to recant the word of God itself. And he concluded, my conscience is bound by the word of God. I can do no other. Here I stand. God, help me. Well, with that bold declaration, he was issued a death sentence. And he was given six weeks to put his affairs in order. But as he left that trial, Luther was kidnapped, not by his enemies, but by his friends, They staged a plot to come and get him. They put a bag over his head and they took him to the Wartburg Castle where no one would suspect him to be. And there the government officials could not find him. They could not kill him. And so as Luther sat in the Wartburg Castle, he decided to translate the New Testament into the German language. Have some time? Why not? And this is a monumental achievement. Luther's German New Testament was called the September Bible because it was published in September of 1522. And Luther was meticulous in his translation. But the reason why I'm telling you this is when he came to this verse, verse 28 of chapter 3, he added a word that was not in the original text. And that's usually a no-no for translators. But he did this to make it very clear for the German-speaking people concerning what Paul is saying. Do you know what word he added to the verse? Alone. He added the word alone to this verse. For we hold that a man is justified by faith alone. Alone is not in the original text, but the truth of it is. The truth of it is very, very clear. Because Paul continues to say, apart from works of the law. So if justification is apart from works of the law, it must be by faith alone. And the teaching of sola fide is one of the five solas. I came from the Reformation. If you see me during the week, I have three or four shirts that have the five solas on them. Uh, I'm proud to talk about the five solas, and I get questions on it uh, somewhat often. But this sola became a shorthand uh, for justification by faith alone, and it's the very heart of this verse. And that's justification by faith alone is not only taught here. It's taught early in Romans. It's taught in Galatians 3. But this was the defining text for Luther as he translated the Bible into the German language. And so as we consider that we are saved apart from works of the law, that we are saved without any merit of our own, the more we understand this, the more we understand God's amazing grace to us, the work on the cross exalts the grace of God. It exalts the grace of God. Well, next... The next purpose of propitiation is to magnify God's impartiality. And these next two points will be a little bit shorter. 
But verse 29 says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so we see in these verses that God is the God of all people, of Jew, of Gentile, the circumcised, the uncircumcised. And just as God is impartial in his condemnation of all people, like we see earlier in chapter 3 here, God is also impartial in offering his grace to all who would place their faith in the work of his Son. And we see another truth in these verses, that there is only one God, only one God. Pagan religions usually have multiple false gods, many false gods. Usually one of these gods stands above as the supreme deity. It was just true in the people group that we worked in in Siberia, the Saha people. I've mentioned this before, but they worshipped a myriad of different spirits, but they had one that stood above, and that was the spirit of the sun, which they worshipped. But Judaism, in contrast to this, stood out from the very beginning. It has always been what we see in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Exactly. But even though the Jews knew that there was only one God, we see many times that they actually didn't believe that the Gentiles could be saved, that the God was available to them. They were God's chosen people, no one else. And the well-known story of Jonah illustrates this truth. Jonah disobeyed and didn't go to Nineveh because he thought his mission would fail. No, he didn't go because he knew he would succeed. He knew God was going to save this city. Look at this in Jonah 4.2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew that the Lord would save Nineveh. And yet he was arrogant. He was jealous. He did not want God to bless any other nation. And yet God worked in spite of this prophet of Jonah. However, besides Jonah, the Jews uh, did know that the Lord would bless and save a Gentile. There's other examples in the Old Testament. Examples include Rahab, the prostitute who hid the spies. And in fact, she was even included in the Messianic line of Jesus. What a great honor. Ruth. Ruth was not a Jewish lady. Ruth was a Moabite woman. And she became the great-grandmother of the most revered King David. We know Elisha healed the Syrian captain Naaman of leprosy. So there are examples of this. And yet, in spite of these examples, many Jews still had hatred in their hearts for Gentiles. And Paul is very logical here in verses 29 and 30 because he's saying if there is only one God, then he must not only be the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles also. He is the God of every single person. And we sing and affirm this here at church. One of my favorite songs, Mediator. We sing, there is only one God. There is only one mediator. And verse 30 also affirms that salvation has always been by faith which we're going to see in the next chapter as well. From the covenant with Moses all the way back to Abraham, even Hebrews 11 confirms this. In the beginning of Hebrews 11, it says that by faith that the people of old, 
looking those in the Old Testament. By faith, the people of old received their, condom, their commendation. And so the purpose of propitiation was to display God's righteousness, to exalt his grace, and to magnify his impartiality. And then lastly, this morning, we see that it is to uphold God's standard. To uphold God's standard. Look at our last verse, verse 31. Paul says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so here Paul is answering a question that he knew his readers would bring up. And the objection would probably go like this. Well, Paul, if you're saying that of all people, if people have always been saved by faith alone, then the law is not only useless now, but it has always been useless. There's no purpose to it. But Paul responds with the very powerful, by no means. He said this two other times in chapter 3. It's like saying a thousand times no, the strongest no that you can say. The work of Christ on the cross does not cancel. It does not overthrow the law. It was to establish, to uphold, and to confirm it. And this verse brings up two questions that we need to answer. First of all, what is the purpose of the law? And secondly, how is the law upheld? Because Paul says here, we uphold the law. So how, how do we uphold the law? Well, for the first question, we've spoken about many times here in our studies at Shoreline. A good resource for this would be go and to listen to the sermons that were preached in the book of Galatians um, quite a while ago now. But that's something that came up there. Uh, the gospel doesn't overthrow the law because there, the law was never a means of salvation to begin with. The law was given to expose our sin, to show us God's standards for righteousness, and to drive us, to drive us to the work of Christ. The law shows us that we are depraved sinners. It shows us that God's standard is perfection and shows us that only Christ, only Christ can meet that standard. So we must all avail ourselves of this grace that's offered to us. Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul, the late, great R.C. Sproul, his ministry, they say this, the proclamation of God's law should be a regular part of the preaching. For by hearing the law, the believer will be reminded of his need for the gospel. And any non-Christian present for the sermon will learn that he is under the righteous judgment of the creator and must therefore trust in Jesus. But God's law must never be preached apart from the gospel. If this is done, we end up reducing Christianity to moralism, giving the message that people can, by their own efforts, do the right thing. We must never forget that the grace of God sets us free. Friends, it sets us free to love and to serve him. And so this grace must always be preached as well. Without the gospel, the law is an impossible burden. That's very true. Without the gospel, the law is an impossible burden. But I don't think we've talked as much about the second question. How is the law upheld? How is the law upheld? Well, we understand and we uphold, well, we uphold the law when we understand the right use of it. And we're no, we don't have time this morning to go into the different sections of the law uh, and parse that out this morning. But in summary, the moral law that is in the Old Testament is still applicable to us as believers. And so when we understand the right use of it, we will uphold it. And Matthew Henry says this about this section. He says that we establish the right use of the law and secure its standing by fixing it on the right basis. 
The law is still of use to convince us of what is past and to direct us for the future, though we cannot be saved by it as a covenant. Yet we own it and we submit to it as a rule in the hand of the mediator, subordinate to the law of grace, and so are so far from overthrowing that we establish the law. Let those consider this who deny the obligation of the moral law on believers. We understand and we uphold the law by submitting to the role that it has in our lives today. And we do this because we are not to continue in sin that grace may abound. We're going to see that later in Romans. The Lord has given us a new heart and new desires that delight in his law and his loving command. So we can echo with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. Just for a moment, flip a couple pages over to Romans 8. Turn there, Romans 8. The first four verses here. If you're wanting to spend some time and work on your memorization, memorize Romans 8. Memorize Romans 8. It's one of the best chapters in the Bible that you can memorize. But verse 1 of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we say an amen to that. What a joy that is to our lives, isn't it? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He did it this way, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order, and this is where it's really interesting, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We're used to saying that Christ fulfilled the law, but here is Paul saying the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. But how in the world do we do that? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We fulfill it by the power of the Spirit in our lives. The work that the Holy Spirit does in us gives us the power to obey God's loving, righteous commands. Because that was the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. He said that the Holy Spirit would write his law on our hearts. And so we are free from the law, the moral law's condemnation and penalty. We're free from the burden of perfection, yet we are free to live under the new law of faith. What the gospel has done. And that's the amazing truth. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, we've seen that the purpose of propitiation was to display God's righteousness, to exalt his glory, to magnify his impartiality, and to uphold God's standards. And we're finishing out. This is the end of chapter 3. So in chapter 3, we've been reminded of a couple things. We've seen in this chapter the true state of man that no one is righteous. We've been reminded that the whole world is accountable to God and that he demands a perfect righteousness. On Easter Sunday, just last week, we rejoiced and saw in our text that we have a living hope, a great hope, that righteousness can be imputed to our account by the work of Christ. And then all of this leads to no boasting in ourselves, but boasting only in God's great grace. We can rest in the truth that the work has been completed and the law has been upheld by the work of Christ. And so as we close this morning, I just have one application point for us. One application point. We, we started this morning by just being reminded how much our world is infected with selfishness. And we see it very clearly in our Western, Jesus gives me everything I want, cultural Christianity. 
And my question for all of us this morning is this. Whose interests are you looking out for? Whose interests are you looking out for? Your own? Or are you desiring to live a life that has one purpose, to glorify God and to make him known? And I just want to end with the example of Hudson Taylor. In 1865, Hudson Taylor became burdened for the land of China. And his biographer tells us that he became greatly troubled and concerned about the state of the church in England and the church that he was attending in Brighton, England. As he looked around the congregation, this is what he saw, pew upon pew of prosperous, bearded merchants, shopkeepers, visitors, demure wives in bonnets and fancy skirts, scrub children trained to hide their impatience. The atmosphere of smug piety sickened him, so he seized his hat and he left. And this is what he said, unable to bear this, the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sandstone in great spiritual agony. And it was there on that beach that he prayed for just 24, just 24 willing, skillful laborers to go with him to China. And we know that out of that prayer came the China Inland Mission. And due to that ministry and others like it, today there are reportedly about 50 million, even more, 50 million believers in China in spite of its atheistic communist government. God could use Hudson Taylor and others like him because their attention was not focused on their own interests, but on God's glory. Friends, the purpose of propitiation, our salvation, the purpose of our salvation is first and foremost to glorify God. Jesus glorified the Father by submitting to the Father and going to the cross. That's our purpose as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we, Jesus, we thank you that your word is clear this morning. Thankful that not only have you saved us and called us out of darkness, Lord, but you have clearly shown us our new mission, our new life, our new life in you, Lord. You have saved us to honor and glorify you first. You've saved us to be a blessing to others. You've saved us to take the gospel to our neighbors, but also to our world in places where the gospel is not yet been reached or preached. Thank you for being with us by your Holy Spirit, allowing us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law that was done first in Jesus and now it is continuing to be done as we submit to you, Lord, as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives. May we never boast in ourselves. Protect us from that, Lord. It's so easy, so easy to do that. It's so easy to be infected with selfishness and to change our focus make it all about us. Protect us from that, Lord. May we repent of that even this morning if that's something that can be said of our lives, Lord. May we have a new focus this morning as we seek to glorify you alone in this life that you have given us and ultimately looking forward to we will glorify you forever in heaven with you. It's been a privilege to sing to you, to hear from your word, Lord. And we ask that you would Continue to work in our hearts and in our church and in our community this morning. 
in this week. In Jesus' name, everyone said together, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.